and welcome to Dot to Dot, the podcast that connects the dots on how to be you with me, Fiona Merton, psychologist and author. I'm really excited because I've been following you on Twitter. I think we've been connected on Twitter for quite a while through the wonderful yes. Giles Paley Phillips, who is the kindest man <laughs> yes, on the Twitter. Of. <laughs> he is. He's just like, he's yeah. just pure goodness. You meet him and he just is mm-hmm. pure goodness. Anyway, thanks to Giles, mm-hmm. I have met you, Maddie and Holt. And thanks to you, you sent me your book early mm-hmm. as a preview, which is coming out next week. That is, yeah, Thursday, um, <clears throat> which is crazy because that's come really quickly. I remember last year when they said, we're thinking of February the 3rd-ish. I was like, oh, that's ages. And it let me be quite revealing and exposing in the book because I thought, oh, February will never come. It's ages away. And we're in the middle <laughs> of a pandemic. And I thought, oh, fine. And now it's here. I'm like, oh, is it too late just to take a little <laughs> a little break? <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I'm excited. And actually, it's really nice having chatting to people who've read it already, advanced proof wise, um, because it doesn't feel like it's such a jump, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm doing a lot of podcasts with lovely people like yourself who've, who've read it and want to talk about it. And that's a lovely experience for me for something that's been so private. Yeah, I mean, it's really weird, isn't it, writing a book because you're just there on your own. And I found sometimes with writing both books, I thought I was going mad because it's a Mm. bit like this thing of you've got no feedback. You've got nothing coming back at you for so long. And um, you're like, am I actually making any sense here? (laughs) But the other thing, I don't know if you'll find this happens. People say, yeah, yeah, because when you did that and I'm like, how on earth do you know that? And they're like, well, you wrote it in your book. I'm like, did I? (laughs) (laughs) That's a bit much. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm already starting to find that, you know, things like, well, I didn't know that you lived in Tooting. I'm like, oh. Well, I did when I was about, well, whatever age. How do you know? Because it's in your book. You, you talk about, oh, yeah, good. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes, I did. And all of this. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm getting used. I'm, I, I think I'm quite clear on what it is that I shared. And I, I've said this to a couple of people, which was, you know, I don't know if you found this, but especially with a book like this, How to Leave Your Psychopath, it was, it was, it was going to be an all or nothing. So I was either going to do it and I was really going to do it. And I mean, I was going to get in, I was going to, with, uh, with boundaries, we were talking off the, off the mic about boundaries, but I was going to get myself back to a place of fear, to be quite honest with you, of intimidation, of tension in order to write those chapters. And some people won't agree with that. And they'll say, well, that's really damaging. You know, you, you, but I, I think that that was what was needed. And then there needed to be a resolution, which came at the end. And I also think from a psychological perspective, which of course I'm going to go down that route as well, is um, you talked about dissociation a bit in the book. Mm. And although you suffered the painful end of being in damaging relationships, mm. there's, there's different, there are different ways of looking at it, aren't there? Because I don't believe in reliving um, pain for the sake of it I don't believe in you know desensitizing by mm. going over and over it mm. but there is another sort of like angle it's that we need to connect to and make sense of it and if we can do that when we're away from it and we're not as emotionally entwined mm. it can be immensely helpful as well yeah I think coercive control emotional abuse whatever you want to call it by its very nature is insidious it's subtle beyond belief and 
One of the things that was in my head when I was writing this book was, I'm not going to bring the name of the program up, but there was a certain program on the television that did very well. And it was great. I watched it. But it was about a woman who was in a domestic abuse situation. And within 10 minutes, she was, you know, smashed around the face and pushed to the floor and sworn at. And and it made me so cross because... That is the level at which people think domestic abuse is. And I did before this relationship. I, there's at the end of the book, I say, I went to this brilliant crisis counselor and she said, so let's talk about your domestic abuse. And I said, what are you talking about? It wasn't domestic abuse. It was just a bad relationship. And she was like, okay, we got a, we got a lot of work to do. (laughs) But now you see, I wanted to write this book that showed the complexity and the subtlety of emotional abuse because it is far more. And I, I would say in some instances, I, you know, I said this com- rather confusing concept in the book though of, I, I think I said it a number of times, I said, I just wanted him to hit me. I wanted the physical because I, I felt like that would give me my ending. And of course it wouldn't have, but the emotional abuse, the the way it got under my skin and left me with this terror constantly was, you know, it was, I mean, it was awful. And I think that that is so often not portrayed when we look at cases of domestic abuse on the television. I say loosely for entertainment, but you know what I mean. They're put on TV for a reason. In some cases they are, and more so now we see some examples of gaslighting, some examples of love bombing. But domestic abuse is a woman getting punched in the face. And it's not that. And that's what I wanted to make really clear in the book. And I think you do a great job of it. What's really always a relief when you're sort of a psychologist mm. and someone's written about psychology, you yeah. think, um, wonder, wonder how they're going to have written it. I was really it. nervous about this podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because I just read it and I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Because you've you've described terms, you've explained where things come from, you've um, referred to psychologists who've come up with the concepts Mm. and how that's evolved. I think you've done it immense justice from a psychological perspective without taking away from the humour, the, I mean, little bits where you say there's a mirror, something, blah, 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 and then you're like, and I reflected, see what I did there? And it's just... (laughs) Those little bits are just really good. They they lighten it, and but it's incredibly, but it's incredibly revealing of of your life and your experiences. But I think it's really helpful the way you've broken it down and you've chunked it basically on saying, well, this is what a psychopath is, mm. this is what a narcissist is, this is what a controlling relationship looks like. Mm. It may look like this, or it may look like that, and these are the different types of narcissist and. Mm. You've also said, you know, every narcissist and every psychopath is different. Mm-hmm. So whilst you have these things that you might tick the boxes on, they may also be very different. And all of those things, I think, will be immensely helpful for anyone reading it who has been through any form of abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is I'm reading it and I'm thinking, as I said to you before, I'm thinking back to a relationship I had where some of the things you wrote they just resonated like one thing lose faith in your mental state Mm. you think you're going insane Mm. definitely I had that with this guy 
you need to rein in your that this is you're saying that this is what the type of thing that say to you you need to rein in your paranoia about me and other women it's all in your head mm. that one you know was was fed to me time and time again mm. and i did think i was this paranoid mm, same. like over anxious like i was jealous i was things that i'd mm. never been before mm. And, and then, of course, this is the precedent of all of this is that they've told you about their, before you've started and you're in this lovely honeymoon love bombing stage, they've told you about their exes who were crazy and paranoid and never let them have their own space. And you're sitting there all smiling and happy going, I will never be that woman. God, she sounds crazy. I, no way. I have got no jealousy problems. And of course, the months tick on. And slowly you become that crazy ex. And that's, so you, you're already starting out the relationship with this kind of, I will not be her. And then of course they feed you things about their own abandonment, you know, whether it's, whether it's their parents or their teachers or their whatever. And so all the time, you know, especially as a woman, you're, you're trying to be nurturing and saying, I will never leave you and I will never be that woman. And it's in your face, but you're gaslit so much that you just think, well, it's easier to point the blame at myself than at them, especially if they've got anger problems too, which inevitably they probably do. And they fire, you know, very quickly. So it's easier for you just to say, it is in my head and I am going crazy. I mean, one of the things that happened to me, it's not in the book, but um, is that he admitted it. At the end, he admitted it. And I just went, it was like, I don't know, like this exorcism, like this, oh my God, I knew, I knew. And then five minutes later went, no, I was only joking. I just wanted to see how you reacted. <laughs> I oh mean, I can laugh God. now. I can laugh now. But at the time I thought, oh my God, that's it. That's the final straw. That's it. Take me away. I'm done. I've lost, I've lost my mind. Like you've made me lose my mind. So yeah, but I it, mean... But- but at that time, you don't think you've made me lose your mind, no. my mind. You think I've lost my mind. I've made me lose my mind. I have become that person that they so hate and desperately want to get away from. I, I And then you lose a sense of your own identity because it's not who you understand yourself to be. Mm. And that's immensely damaging for self-esteem and self-belief yeah. and the foundations, basically, which we build who we are on. Mm. Hugely. I mean, you know, all the way through the book I talk about, and we we spoke off the record before this about the importance of alone time and how, you know, the the happy ending, in inverted commas, to this book is not, I met someone and he's so different to the others and my life is perfect now and have this house and having a baby. That's not the happy ending. And I make that really clear at the end. The happy ending is that she finds she, I found peace at being alone and it was it coincided with you know being in my 30s that like hitting that that when the biological clock so as they put it raises her head and you start going oh my god I'm feeding into the media's portrayal of a 30 odd year woman and now I'm single this is awful this is the worst thing that could have happened to me so we've got all of that going on and I just chose at that time. I mean, to be honest, there wasn't a decision for me. I didn't just say, oh, I'm going to find peace in being alone. I, the decision had to be made for my own mental health. But sometimes it's not always like that. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, people find it easier 
to be with someone than be without them. And I did that all the way through my 20s for a, a solid decade from one man to the other man to the other man. Um, we're never taking any time. And, and it wasn't until I took two straight years out by myself and went through therapy, worked on this book, you know, did all sorts of things like that, that I finally, it's not like one day I went, oh, ready now. <laughs> I just, I just got to a point of, I would say peace of, of ease with myself. Um, which it's is a the- lovely expression, ease with yourself. Mm. And um, I mean, going off the book just slightly for a moment, you do, uh, you train people in public speaking. And I noticed that you'd say you do it from the inside out. Mm. And a lot of that you say is down to confidence. And of course, I would totally agree that people need to believe and feel comfortable and at ease with themselves to be able to project that outward Mm -hmm. and there's a guy that I worked with on a bit of public speaking stuff in America and he's I mean he he basically said same sort of stuff as I wrote in my second book which is mirror thinking Mm -hmm. it's like if you're anxious the audience are going to feel anxious too if you can but but back to your point there at ease with yourself is a lovely I mean it's just what a lovely place to be it doesn't mean you're fixed it doesn't mean that Mm-mm. there's no growth to happen it doesn't mean that you won't have hard times oh yeah but it means that I'm 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 okay mm-hmm. you know I might not always be okay but at the moment I feel I feel comfortable I feel mm. okay that's right um, and I think that's just even more powerful when you've been through those sorts of situations which as you also refer to in your book can lead to PTSD yeah I mean funnily enough it wasn't until the very end and I would even argue probably like three months after the fact that um these intrusive thoughts started coming and I remember one specific time of walking down the escalator I think it was Tottenham Court Road and all the steps and I mean I I I nearly had it I swear I, I my heart literally leapt out of my chest. It just seeing them everywhere, and the fear, and this visceral fear. I mean, it's visceral. And funnily enough, that doesn't go. That hasn't gone. I don't know if it will, but not when I say it's either thinking. It's not. It's not necessarily thinking of them, but it could be a triggering something that just leaps out at you. I mean, you know, this is actually a question I can ask you. Of you know, will that go, or is that is that going to be there forever? I I don't know. Mm. I think with those things, the the most effective way of making those things go, if you like, is to is to recognize them, to name them, mm. and to mm. rather than tackle them and try and debate with them or understand them or get underneath it or fight it. It's not that, and neither is it putting it away because that leads to the dissociation you're talking about, and it still rears its ugly head. Mm. But it's about acknowledging it and saying oh there it is mm. and then getting on with your own thinking and that and that's not an easy thing to do but but the more at peace you become with those things and mm. the more easy it is to be able to name them and say right I can name that that's what's happening and that's how it makes me feel mm. the easier it will be for your brain to sort of move on and, and yeah I agree it. with that I mean I massively agree with that it's about I, I, I call it in the book noticing there's power in noticing oh, noticing is, yeah. a, is immensely powerful mm-hmm. and I think on that point when you talk about gut mm. because we all know I think right from the beginning 
when we're being duped. Yeah. We know in our gut, but we stop listening to our gut. Yeah. It's funny, I was asked a question and I've been, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago now and I, and I am happy with the answer I gave, but it's a question that hasn't left me. I think it's a really pertinent question. And the question I was asked was, and it was just like a friend of a friend who said, just in passing, oh yeah, what I'm always really confused about is how do you know if it's just a bad relationship or, and they're a bit of a dick, or if it's something that's going to destroy you? Because I never know. And my gut tells me, my gut feels the same both both times. And I thought about that and I thought, okay, so you're asking me, how do you know the difference between effectively a psychopath or a narcissist or someone on that, as I put it in my book, psychometer, the, 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 <laughs> <laughs> the upper end of the scale to someone who has maybe learnt a bit of narcissistic behavior or who's just a bit of a dick or who's maybe, you know, excuse my language, but a bit of a fuck boy or a fuck girl or fuck person, let's say, to be inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know? And my answer was simple. And my answer was, and it took me a lot of thinking, but I got to it because I think I get this in the book and I stress this in the book. And it's something I really want to touch on, which is patterns. When you... Um, notice but one of the biggest turning points for me was that cycle of abuse which I talk about in the book that 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 psychological concept of the cycle of abuse whereby the like micro and macro patterns circular patterns that happen within a relationship but also with yourself repeating behaviors going for the same person but within a toxic let's say relationship or controlling relationship there will be those patterns that start you know, honeymoon, that gorgeous bit at the top where it's all love and you get all the gorgeous love hormones. And then things start to feel a little bit tense, you know, so you're getting that adrenaline, that cortisol, you walk into the room, they hide their phone, your ears are up around your, your, your shoulders around your ears, you feel that, I, I call it a w- w- treading on red, red hot coals, that sense that something is imminent. It's almost like there's a big storm coming, but you're not quite prepared. And it's in your tummy and it's your tummy is tight all the time. And then, of course, comes the big explosion and it is the rage and the fight and the accusations. And it could be anything you've done. Doesn't matter what you've done. It will come. You can't stop it. And so then all of that, you're then dealing with all of those big rageful, you know, that you're defending yourself, but they're rageful hormones. And then, of course, after that comes the nice reconciliation. Oh, God. And they won't necessarily say, I'm sorry, nine times out of 10, they won't. But they will say, you know, it's silly when we fight like this. You don't need to get all worked up, you know, and you've just been through this tornado. Your hair's all over the place. You've cried your eyes out. You haven't slept. You're feeling, you know, an absolute wreck. I remember it so clearly. And when they say, you know, come to you with open arms, oh, stop being silly. You walk into those arms, not because you're an idiot or you're naive, but because you are desperate for a respite from this, the actual chemicals that are going on in your body. And then you get the cup and then you go and you move on to that honeymoon again. Oh, look, I told you it was going to get here. And then so the cycle continues. And so my answer to that was that look for the patterns, work out, don't ignore the cycles. And that was one. uh, (laughs) Yeah, sorry. sorry. That was one of the biggest things for me, I was going to say, that that made me go, oh, hold on a sec. I think that's a a fantastic description. Scary (laughs) when Mm -hmm. I think about the relationship I was in so long ago. Um, And that 
feeling of extreme vulnerability and you're ripped to shreds you're raw you're exposed emotionally and you feel physically exposed because you're so tired a lot of the time as well and to have a hug from the person that you desperately feel that need for attachment from it's it's like you say it's respite from the chemicals but it's also you have no self-belief at this point you have no self-esteem you have you're questioning your every ounce of being so you want that hug yeah you'll take it and also you know just to get a little bit dark here not only will you take that hug but if that I'm gonna say affection in inverted commas or respite whatever you want to call it comes in the form of sex and it comes in the form of degrading sex because that's what they want then you'll give that too and I think that was one of the hardest chapters in the book that took me that chapter I'm quite a fast writer. I do like a a vomit draft. (laughs) I just write, 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 write. And then I go back and I edit. But that chapter, sexual coercion, took me, ah, probably the best part of a month to write. Just, and I'm talking just about the anecdote, the memoir at the beginning. Um, that was, that was painful because it was, I was battling with not only, oh God, you know, my family are going to read this, my, you know, this is so exposing. In fact, I said to my my brilliant literary agent, Anna, so many times, you know, I think we'll skip this, actually. Let's just take that out. And she was like, okay, just sit with it. Just sit with it. She was amazing. And then I did, I thought, you know what, let me write, the, let me write it and then I can always take it out. And so I did. I did like a very therapeutic session of getting myself back to that place. I mean, it was really difficult. And talking about that, um, the use, the weaponization of degradation, you know, that I will give you that respite that you need and it will come in the form of degrading sex and you will like it and you will still want to please me in whatever way I want. And equally, when you give yourself to me in that way, you lose even more respect for yourself. And so you get weaker and weaker and weaker. I mean, I think we'll have to put a trigger warning on this episode, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that is something that's skirted over quite a lot because I talk about the rough sex defense in that I talk about, you know, consent and the idea of like, how much, how many times in your life I've put at the end of that chapter, I put sexual coercion bingo. <laughs> Because it's like so darkly entertaining where you go, holy fuck, how many times in my life have I been coerced into sex without knowing? Hmm. Um, So yeah, that chapter was like, you know, let's get into this. If we're going to do this, let's, I put a little warning. I think I say in the chapter before, like friends, family, skip. (laughs) But it's important. It's important stuff to talk about. I think it is. And I... I really admire you for for doing it because I admire you not just from the fact that it will help other people, which is what I desperately want to do all the time, which probably says something about me. (laughs) Um, But it's also the experience you had to go through to get to that. That's what's so difficult um, and incredibly revealing and immensely helpful as a result of that because it's you saying hey this is normal it's not Mm. nice but this happens Mm. and if you're going through this it's it's normal but it shouldn't be 
Yeah. I there's just it's too glossy for me. The the rough rough sex is too glossy for me. It's too fifty shades. It's too there's a layer there that we are not ready to talk about, but we need to talk about. And that is the layer of being, you know, willing to please someone in whatever way they want for the sake of peace. And I put peace again in inverted commas, you know, for the sake of desperately needing affection or love. There's a, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you are in a relationship or not in a relationship. It happens. And, um, it, it's skirted over as like, wow, my twenties were wild. <laughs> I did all sorts of crazy things in bed, but it's more than that. You know, sometimes that is just it. It's just like, oh God, I got really hammered and it was crazy sex. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, the sex or the degradation, let's call it, the, that's, that's more rough sex and non-consensual, even without saying the word no. Yeah. And I think that's, that comes down to all this subtlety, which I, I get upset about us losing nuance and subtlety or not we don't lose it it's still there but losing our interpretation and understanding of nuance and subtlety through use of social media mm. but those nuance differences are fucking enormous mm. so i want to have dirty sex fine i want to have fun i want to have dirty sex too I am doing this because this is what I believe I have to do at this point in time. And I, and you don't even necessarily consciously think yes. this, but it's, I hate myself. I hate myself yes. for this. Yes. 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 A hundred times. Yes. I mean, and, you know, I was watching a thing. This is a, you know, an appalling thing about, um, you know, girls, girls being trafficked from Romania and you know, that, uh, when they get you know the police comes already so they've already got mistrust of the police to start with so that's a problem and you know they get taken and of course they you know don't talk about their abuse or whatever and they just go back to it because you know they've normalized it desensitized it, all of those psychological conundrums that are happening there but you know that's okay that's sex trafficking in Romania whatever and it feels far removed but there are so many elements of that right now in coercive relationships you know that um, you know, that I want to please them because that's what you do in relationships. And this is how we heal from fights. And, you know, the term, I got a real problem with the term makeup sex. Mm. You know, I've got a real issue with that because hold on a fucking minute. <laughs> you know, okay, makeup sex can be, you know, you can have some intimacy because you've, you've fought and it's been a rush of emotions and you just want to hold each other and be close. Fine. But nine times out of 10, makeup sex is when one person feels that they've let the other person down. So they give them access to their body in order to make them feel better. Now that's not consent. No. And again, it's that subtlety, yeah. which is enormous in terms of the psychological yeah. aspects of it. But if you were watching it from the outside, it looks the same. 100%. Yeah. There's, have you seen Big Little Lies? No, I haven't. It's on my list, funnily enough, and it's at the top of my list. Because it just reminded me of a scene in that, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's Nicole Kidman being bashed about by um, her husband and, mm. and basically having violent makeup sex. Mm. And I don't know if I, I could watch I mean, it. the thing is, I think the fact that it was written by women mm. and it was produced by women made that a really powerful, powerful series. Um, 
it, it, it's good but it could be triggering as well so yeah maybe that's why I haven't because I knew that's what it was about maybe that's what I as far, when I was writing the book obviously obviously in order to write the book I needed to do a lot of work I needed to do a lot of work on myself with therapists with experts with whoever and uh read everything and consume everything um and be a kind of open vessel to research and all of these kind of things and Honestly, I've got to a point now where I just go, oh God, let's do another project. Because <laughs> it is, it's so, but at the same time, you know, we said at the beginning of this, you know, um, there's like some personal stuff going on that I'm dealing with right now. And actually it feels like a nice, uh, calm place for me to be, to talk about, to be stood back from the book and be away from it and then reflect back on it. I feel very empowered where I am right now. I think when I was writing the book, had I have talked about it as well, it would have been too much. But I'm far away from it now and I can see it for what it is. Uh, I think that's not to say I'm not shitting it when my book comes out next week. But <laughs> It's so exciting. It's so exciting. It really is. And and I, I sort of hadn't twigged that it hadn't come out yet. I was, I was reading it through and then I think I, think I looked at your website and it said out on the 3rd, is it? February, yeah. Yeah, 3rd of February. And I was like, oh, oh, it's not yeah. even out yet. Yeah. Um, as I said, I, I I, mean, I think it's really well done. And I think, so So, I, if I think about my books and I think about, I am a psychologist. So I do know a lot of stuff. I don't know a lot of stuff because with psychology, the more you know, the more there is to know. Mm. And so you're, you're never an expert, I don't think. Yeah. But I'm drawing on other people's stuff and I'm putting it in there, but that's my subject matter. Yeah. And I'm not talking about myself. I am a little bit, but not much. You've basically, you've talked about a subject that's not necessarily your subject matter. You've written it in a way that you've translated it from what I've read really accurately. So that can always be the danger Thank with you. Yeah. translating anything <laughs> yeah. that's not your, you know, you've translated, you know, things like when you talk about the fact that I was interested to see what you said with psychopath and sociopath and how they can overlap. And they do. And lots of psychologists will call them the same thing. Some will call them something slightly different. And then it's like, is it a tomato or a tomato? It kind of comes to that as well. Um, But on top of that, you've written about yourself and your story. But on top of that, (laughs) you've had to look into it and explore it and position it in a way that it makes sense to other people and it's helpful to other people that's one big project yeah I mean I really wanted to the one of the impetuses for doing the book in the first place was I mean so the, the story of, of the book the yeah. evolution of the book was that I wrote it as a comedy stand-up hour and it was actually called how to train your psychopath and this is pre-covid and I did a couple of shows and every show was selling out and after every, and I wasn't even really pushing it that much. And I thought, hey, I'm onto something here. And I was, it was, uh, someone gave me this advice and they said, look, when you're doing something that's so raw and you're trying to translate it to comedy, uh, do it as a TED talk. Don't worry about making it funny. Just do it as a TED talk. How would you do it? And then deliver that. And I did. And that was terrifying because people came to see a comedy hour. And I was like, and then of course we've got enmeshment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then find the, the points for humor. And I thought, oh my God, that's impossible. But then I realized that comedy is such a jump off for, 
subject matter like this because it makes people relate. You meet people where they are. So I'm tr- I was trying to get that voice of older sister, best friend being like, mate, cut your shit, sit down, let's have a chat. And so that was my first thing. How do I write it in that kind of colloquial voice that doesn't over, I'm the, my biggest point was I don't need, I don't have anything to prove, you know, and when I stopped trying to prove myself because of imposter syndrome or whatever, that's when the show came apart, came together and then COVID hit and then, um, great time for comedy stand. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, I lost the funding for the tour. I lost the tour. I lost whatever. And then I was kind of sitting there feeling sorry for myself, thinking, well, that was really unfair. I just got back to myself to a point of strength to write the bloody show. And I did the show and I booked it all. And then I was doing a podcast with a wonderful guy. I don't know if you know him, Sam Delaney. And I was on this podcast with him and we were having a chat. And he's like, what have you been up to? And I've known Sam for years. And I said, oh, just nothing and I wasn't doing anything creative so I went I might write a book Sam I don't know <laughs> I was really sulky and he went oh great what's the book about and I went oh I don't know write about my show or I don't know whatever <laughs> and he's like okay well send it to me when you've got something about two months later we went got Maddie send me what you've got and I said well it's not really anything Sam and I'd done like a couple of paragraphs a vague outline of how I would look make it as a book and then he went oh, I'm just going to send it to someone see what they think and I went yeah okay fine and he said it to his wife. And his wife is the powerhouse literary agent, Anna Palai. And she doesn't take on new clients. She's like the fiercest. She's so brilliant. I can't explain. And she she said to me, right, let's work together, do the book. And I'm like, wait, no, what? So she said, write 25,000 words of the book and we'll pitch. And I did it. And um, we didn't get anything for about two weeks. And I thought, oh, and she said, well, you know, this is your first book. So this is what happens in the world of publishing. You don't always get a deal straight away. You can come back to it in a couple of years. And I thought, I don't want to come back to it in a few years. (laughs) And then there was this magical day where I was reading a book called Soul for Happy by a guy called Mo Gaudat, who is former Google X. He's, oh God, he's incredible guy, incredible and it's about the formula for happiness. His son passed away and it was about fi- refinding happiness. It's such a good book. I, I really strongly recommend What's it. What's it called again? Sorry. It's called Soul for Happy. Like Soul, Soul for Happy. Yeah. And I finished this book and I turned the last page. And on the last page, it said, published by Bluebird, Pam McMillan. And I thought, oh, yeah, I know Pam McMillan, Bluebird. Wow, they do loads. God, I've got loads of their books on my shelf. And my phone rang and it was my agent. And she said, you've just been preempted by Bluebird. Oh my goodness. And I was like, what? And then came the work, of course. And then came the work. And what I began to realize is there was, in my mind, I couldn't find the book that existed whereby you've got, you know, the psychological take on things, on coercive control, on emotional abuse, you've got that intimate terrorism, you've got the, like these kind of terms, you've got, you know, these are the people and this is what they do and this is how their brains work. And then on the other side of the scale, you've got, and I'm not saying trashy in an offensive way, I'm saying it in a readable holiday read way. You know, those books where people recount their experiences and they're awful, but they tend to be, you know, a little bit rom-com. They'll have some sex scenes in them. They'll finish with them the protagonist meeting like the gorgeous guy and everything will be great you've got those those are the 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 two extremes and then I thought well where is the book that is memoir meets analysis meets 
somebody trying to work through the actual psychology of what is happening from someone who's not a psychologist. Where is that? So that is when this kind of evolution of this book happened of I'm not trying to prove myself. I'm not trying to say I've got a PhD and I'm trained. And I say that at the very beginning. But what I am doing is I want the reader to meet me where I am and say, okay, here's the memoir. Immerse yourself in this and what do you relate to? And then let's pull out what's actually happening. You know, it's a bit of a show and tell, you know. But, but Let me show got, you. I mean, it's facts. It's You've written the mm. theory. You've written the findings you've explained what these things mean and so often it will get it'll get twisted so that someone's like I don't know someone gives themselves the label of having some severe psychological disorder because they've misunderstood it Mm. or but this is saying these are the things these are the things to look out for these are the names of the things Mm. this is what it actually is it's something real it's not something made up in your head yeah and I think that gives that as well it's not just saying I've had this experience and you may have shared my experience it's saying this is the science these are the facts this is what it is and and I, again, it's this strange word, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we don't want to normalise things. But on the other hand, we want people to feel, you are normal. Other people yeah. have gone through this. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's the, I say I use the term a hug of belief. And mm, I quite often when I was doing, yeah, when I was doing the book and I came across things like Biderman's Chart of Coercion or, um, you know, just not even so much because I knew about Dr. Robert Hare's. I knew about that. Like, that's quite general knowledge, right? People know about the traits of psychopathy. So obviously I had to include that, but it was deeper than that. And so it was things like Biderman's Chart of Coercion and the cycle of abuse that made, that was the hug of belief for me. I think it's the thing I always find with psychology and the thing I find missing, unfortunately, and it's no one's fault, is that it's not put together. So mm. psychology, it's like you say, there's a, there's a pattern, there's a pattern of abuse in the same way as, you know, um, I I was pointing something out to my eldest daughter that was wrong with someone um, trying to explain a behaviour. I won't go into too much detail and I'm <laughs> digging myself a hole here. But I, I was. they said, yeah, but she said, yeah, but everyone does that. And I'm like, yeah, but everyone does that, but they don't also do this and this. Yeah. And it's like you take things in isolation, whether yeah. it's a pattern of behaviour, whether it's a belief, whether it, all sorts of things, and they, they don't really mean that much. But when you put them together, mm-hmm. and particularly if you put them together in a certain way, that's when it starts meaning something. And yeah. It's difficult to to educate people on that. I, I mean, I always say, my, my mom, what did my mum say to me the other day? She, oh, she was talking about someone couldn't work out their own nutrition, which puzzled her because she used to be a chemistry teacher. I know that doesn't make sense, but it's my mum saying that. And, and I said, yeah, but mum, the thing is, I'm a psychologist and look at me, I'm screwed. And it's like, it, it's it's complex and it's putting that puzzle together. And it's hard enough if you're living a, normal happy contented life no one is really everyone's got things to learn everyone's got things to learn about the world about themselves and and putting in abusive relationships just makes that 10 million times harder so anything that can help people understand is amazing because as you said you've got the the narrative you've made it fun you've made it light but you've put in factual information and you've put it in in such a way that it all comes together. 
So you have got, how is a narcissist and a psychopath, how are they different? What does that mean? What does a controlling relationship mean? And you've talked about the subtleties throughout as well, because you said, well, you know, someone could be a dick, like you said mm. earlier. It doesn't mean they're a narcissist. No. But actually, I mean, if you add up this behavior, this behavior, this behavior, they're more likely a narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You can be, you can be in it and going, I remember going on dates after at some or some point in that probably not wanting to be alone phase. And a guy was saying to me he was asking what I did and I at the time I was doing a lot of of comedy and I said oh I'm a comedian and he said to me um oh that's I mean that's great but you know it's it's quite an unattractive job for a female to have isn't it (laughs) (laughs) and then later on and I just as you do because I'm polite whatever I just went well I don't know but I mean now I'd go sorry what I love it when someone says something like that and you go, explain, explain your thinking. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> do you want to be, do you want to be the number of my next joke? <laughs> so I said, I think I just said, oh, I don't think so, or whatever. And then as this went on and we went on like two dates or three dates or something and, and I noticed, I did begin to notice, wow, you know, I'm coming away from these, these dates feeling awful and feeling really self-conscious about myself. And then, I was kind of extricating with a friend, which is sometimes the best thing to do when you're feeling a bit uncomfortable about how someone is making you feel. Um, what Some of the things he said, and I was like, God, you know, yeah, he did say, um, oh, things like, um, oh, you look really beautiful tonight. You're wearing less makeup than last time. And I would think, thanks. I, th- uh, thank you. I'm <laughs> confused. And so I talk about that in the book that like, it's really important to bring awareness to things like negging and calling them out because obviously, you know, the go-to response to somebody, if you do call that, it was, oh, come on, I was joking. But then take that a step further and, uh, and ask yourself, you know, not how do I feel about them or do they fancy me, but how do they make me feel about myself? And that is like the key thing, right? It's a thing that we know and we go, oh yeah, all power to that. It's not something we actually no, no. <laughs> and, and what what resonates so much there with me is so many of my female friends will hang out with what I would call toxic groups of other females, and if you could take if you took them away from any of those situations or if you do they'll say that they they made me feel horrible, it made me feel horrible. Why do you keep going back then yeah. what do but you owe less, them what do you owe them and mm. and I think in less it's less um complex when it's a platonic relationship but there's still this need to prove yourself it's a at some level that's unconscious we're thinking well they don't think I'm good enough so I'm going to go back because I want them to like me and I want to prove myself and it's really the only way you can get out of that is to say hang on stop like you said stop how do they make me feel Mm. and if they make me feel shit then do I really want to hang out with them? Yeah. You can either do what you say, you can call it and you can say, hang on a minute, you always say this to me. Mm. Why do you say that to me? And you can do it in whatever way, you know, you don't have to be confrontational, you can just name it. Or you say, do you know what? I, I've i had enough of this, I'm walking away. And I think, actually, I had a thing, I'm going to be really non-specific here, but just in case, but I had a thing recently where uh, somebody I know, and I've known for like 20 years, repeated a behavior that I and because I've known them for that long it's like 
you know, I always used to get teased when I was at secondary school for being a bit of a pushover and being, as I say in the book, a bit of a mummy, right? And looking after everyone. And that's a bit of sort of codependency there creeping in. I look after everyone. I fix everyone. I'm there for everyone but myself, right? Classic. And anyway, I've really nurtured and worked on that behavior with compassion um, for myself, you know, to set those boundaries and whatever. But I still, you know, you said confrontation that I still, I hate confrontation. I'm just, life is too short. But this specific thing happened. They said something to me in a different way, but it was like, it was the same vibe. It's almost like they just wanted a little bit of drama or just to lash out on that Sunday morning or whatever. And normally I would just go, oh, for God's sake, whatever, just leave it. But it really sits with me. It makes me feel uncomfortable and it's toxic, you know? And I thought, well, hold on a fucking minute. (laughs) No, I'm not doing this anymore. And I don't care that it's been 20 years of this repeated behavior, but enough is enough. And funnily enough, I did, I called it out and in a really kind way, you know, I think I made a bit of a joke of it, but I made sure that there was like a, you know, a needling thing through the middle and they took it quite badly, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But since then, it has brought our relationship to a new level, actually. It stepped things up and it took a bit of time. It took a few uncomfortable weeks of like, oh, don't be so petty or whatever, but it's now sort of taken on a new life. And I think sometimes when a relationship is older as well, and you're thinking that you know the person from 20 years ago, people change, mm. you know. So it's like shaking off that skin and going, no, this all needs a refresh. Like, dust it all off. Let's yeah. start again. And I think what's lovely about that example is it doesn't mean dumping friends. It doesn't mean no. getting rid of friends that you've been friends with for years. It can mean a readjustment it can mean and I a subtle or a funny or a you know product hang on a minute that you know I don't think that's right or please don't say that to me or don't do that um and if you do it with a bit of humor I think yes like you say it might be a bit uncomfortable for a while but it take it can take the relationship to a new level and if it doesn't then I don't know you move on I mean you know to move on yeah, of course, you know, like I'm talking about friends here. I, I think if you, if it's a relationship that's really toxic, I don't care how long you've been in it or the age or whatever, you know, if it's destroying you, annihilating you from the inside out, like the ones I talk about in the book, then that is way beyond <laughs> like, let's just try and chat. Yeah. It's so hard, isn't it? That's so yeah. actually, if we, if we just finish on that, um, mm. Oh, it's so easy. Give me the answer. When uh, when you're in a relationship with a psychopath, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just walk out the door, of course. Why don't oh, you just leave them? <laughs> um, I think it's. In, uh, I think you need to gauge the severity of the situation, and I don't mean some are more severe than others, but I mean there's always a threat level, and don't uh, overlook that threat level. I think um, these people, by their very nature, controlling personality types or controls, as I call them in my book are um desert their their sole aim it to be honest even if sometimes they would say that they don't mean to is to tear you down and make you crumble and watch you fall so that's not going to change but what if you've come to that position and you go shit I'm in this relationship and it's really bad for me and um they are toxic they may or may not be a psychopath or a narcissist but I'm out I've got to get out it's destroying me the first thing to say is take it slow. And I don't mean just take a breather and reconsider. I mean, don't just suddenly pack up all your shit and leave because you are much more likely to bounce back again and to go back to that person. I would say, 
you know, slowly and safely work out what your exit strategy would be. You know, if it is a very dangerous situation, pack yourself a safety bag, get your ID, get some personal things. If you have children with that person, then get a few things for them, perhaps leave a bag with a neighbor or in a hidden place. Work out where you're going to go. So like stay as calm as you possibly can. It's likely that you are absolutely terrorized and exhausted and probably very thin and whatever else. So slowly work out where would I go, whether it's a refuge, you can call the National Domestic Abuse Helpline. There's various ones, whichever country you're in, work out where the emergency refuges are. If you have still some contact, if you some people are completely isolated, I know I was, but if you have co- contact with friends or family, find somewhere to stay. You don't, the main thing to say is don't make it a conversation with your perpetrator. It is not, listen, I've had enough and I'm going because you never know what is going to happen. They are, they can fly off the handle. It is not a conversation. You are doing it and it's your choice and your choice only. Find the right time to leave, whether maybe they're at work or something. Um, and start as soon as you're out that door and you've got yourself to safety. I talk about a safety squad in the end of my book, which is having allies around you that you are going to be totally honest with. So, okay, yes, therapists, counsellors, all of that. But I'm talking about somebody who is there with your safety, like at the top of their mind. So yes, obviously block them, although that's a very difficult thing to do because I didn't do it. And if you read my book, you'll see what happens when you don't do that. Um expect them to come back and try and find you the rate of femicide the rate of uh you know violence towards women and girls or and also towards men is the highest just after leaving like that is a very critical time you are at your most vulnerable there are some horrific stories out there of women who've been lured back you know on the sake of false hopes and promises about what could be and then getting killed by their partners like don't think that they won't do it they're out there so protect yourself protect your children stay with people that will look after you if you need to call the police and put in a report then do it's important to have these things logged um make sure that if you i say expect to go back in the kindest of ways not in a non-judgmental way there are techniques and tactics that they use, things like hoovering uh, in the book, which is basically them trying to suck you back into their lives. And they are very clever. And when you are weak and vulnerable, your brain will tell you, oh God, it's just easy. Isn't it just easier to be with them? Uh, like this pain that you're in right now, when you extricate yourself from their life, this is horrible. You were better off there. Like you had some good times, just go back. That's what your brain will tell you. Remind, write yourself a list down but if you do it with someone and remind yourself of the way they made you feel and try and just remind yourself of those feelings if you need to do some meditation and get, even get yourself back to that place I know it sounds completely anti-conventional non-conventional but I mean it like literally bring yourself back to that feeling of terror and then remind yourself okay this is what I need to get away from Um, and be, yeah, be really cautious because they may well try and win you back because you were great for them. You were their ego massage. And slowly, I think over time, if you stay firm and you have your little safety squad and you speak to the police and you start therapy, whether it's online or not, there's free therapy out there. People don't, people think that you have to spend a load of money on it and you don't. If you don't have the money, which if you've been financially controlled, you may not, then have a look at things like talking therapies. Um, 
and work through that process and understand that it's not weeks, it's months or years um, to get away from these people. But, you know, there's, as with like, if you look at cases of stalking, it's not, these people won't just suddenly stop. You're not just suddenly safe because you're out and you've got to remind yourself of that. There's things that you can do to protect yourself, surround yourself with the right people, make sure that you're not alone, inform the police, um, get people on side, report behaviour. And I think what's, I mean, that's an amazing checklist and mm. it's Women's Refuge in the UK. Um, I'll put that on on my website and I'll put some stuff for the, for where the other main listeners are on the, on the webs uh, uh, on the podcast notes as well. Mm. What I'm thinking there is if you're listening and you think well he's or she is not violent or mm. they're not a physical danger remember the psychological impact it's having on you because that's dangerous as well. And you may okay. think well it's not serious enough to report to the police. Fine, you might be in, say, a relationship like the one I was in. It wasn't serious enough to report to the police, but I still shouldn't have been in that relationship. Mm. And it was still incredibly damaging to my emotional health mm. over a long period of time. So there are degrees in between that as well, oh, where yeah. you still it's, need to be yeah. thinking seriously about, is this really what you mm. need for your life? Mm. is it serving me you know what person is it making me because I knew at the end as they say in the book what you put up with at the end of that relationship is not what you would have put up with at the beginning I mean I love that actually that's one of the things one of the many things I've got a whole <laughs> list of things that we haven't talked about that um that I loved in your book but that's one of the things is would you put would you have put up with this at the beginning of a relationship mm. and I think it's a really useful gauge to go back to and think if I started the relationship like this, would I be putting up with it? And equally, if you saw a friend or a loved one going through it, would mm. would you think it was tolerable? Would you think that was okay? It's just it's so many signs. Yeah, so many. Are you being secretive about it? Are you not telling people that you're going on dates with that person or seeing that person? Why not? You know, it's, you know, like you sometimes got to get a bit real with yourself. Um, I mean, we could just talk about this endlessly for hours, but there, yeah, there are, so, like you said, in the, really nicely that the book is sort of block, blocked up and the sort of last segments of the book are for friends and family who've got people in those relationships, what to do, how to help them, but also for people in them or who have been in them to help you remove the toxic shame because it's easy to go, I blame myself and I should have left. Well, but it's, it's not, not that bad. Or it's That's, not that I, bad, yeah. I think, I mean, but see, just to finish off, um, on a lighter note, <laughs> it is funny. It is funny, <laughs> and you're, you're funny. Um, you are an ambassador for Women's Refuge, aren't you? Women's Aid, yeah. Women's Aid, sorry. Women's Aid, get it right, Fiona. Um, <laughs> which I think is amazing as well. But I, I think it's possible to have humour even in darkness and darkness in humour and, and vice versa and... I love that you have brought this concoction together as something that's quite nuanced and complex, but translated into something that's quite fun and digestible. And I'm sure, I'm really sure is going to help a huge number of people. So thank you so much. Thank you thank for you. talking to me. Thank you for all your lovely words. And yeah, let's do this publication. Yay, exciting. <laughs> Yay. <laughs>
<laughs> everyone, everyone. Yeah, I'll put the links in the, the show notes as well. Everyone go and get it. Because even if you've not been in a relationship like this, guaranteed someone you know will have been. Mm, yeah, definitely. Thanks, Maddie. Thank you. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about me and my work, go to fionamurden.com or my social media handle is also Fiona Murden. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe, review and tell your friends. It would be a massive help. But for now, goodbye and I hope you have a great week.